And in the book of Matthew, if you'll turn in your Bible there, chapter 1, and as soon as you find that, turn to Luke chapter number 2, Matthew chapter 1, and then Luke chapter 2, if you will, please. And stand when you find it, and we'll read, we'll read God's Word here today. Matthew chapter 1, and I began reading in verse 1. The first words of the New Testament, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now learn something there. Jesus Christ was not technically the son of David, but that's the way Jewish genealogies express things. And so we know that his father was Almighty God, but he's called the son of David because that's his genealogy, that's his lineage, and then 14 generations before David, you have Abraham, and it says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. They lived hundreds and hundreds of years apart, and yet that's the way genealogies are written in the Jewish fashion. Now, we go down then through this list here, beginning in verse 2 through verse 15, of names that are almost unpronounceable to us, aren't they? And probably most people skip that. I'll give you a hint. We're going to look at that tonight some. But um, somebody called it a Hebrew telephone directory. And that's probably, that's what it looks like, isn't it? You just don't read telephone directories very often. But we get to verse 16. Jacob begat Joseph, the husband, not the father of Jesus, but the husband of Mary of whom was born, there's the virgin birth, Jesus, who is called the Christ. And all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. So this deals with 42 generations total. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. And then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. While he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now, go with me to Luke chapter 2, and the angel is making an announcement here to the shepherds. And in chapter 2, in verse number 10, it says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, attach that verse in your mind to Matthew 1.21. Call his name Jesus. 
He shall save his people from their sins. Luke 2, 10, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And then if you'd like to quickly turn with me to chapter 19 and verse 10 of the same book, the book of Luke, and you find there years later, 33 years later, in fact, we have the Lord Jesus Christ speaking about His mission. He tells us specifically and exactly why He came to the earth. And in chapter 19 and verse 10, He says, The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. So I've read to you from three portions of Scripture, and there's one word that's in, in common in all these three passages. It's the word save or Savior. And that's the subject this morning, Christ our Savior. You may be seated. Thank you. Christ our Savior. Throughout the month of uh, December, Many years I have spoken all month long in the Sunday morning services, particularly on the subject of the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of Christ. And I've done that again this year. And last week I spoke on the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, in the Bible, we often hear Lord and Savior in the same sentence, the same statement. We talk about Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We attach those two words and concepts together. Last week, I dealt with the Lordship of Christ. Today, I want to talk about Jesus Christ, our Savior. Based on Matthew 1 and 21 there, He shall save His people from their sins. You know, familiarity, we have an old saying that says familiarity breeds contempt. We mean by that that when we, we are familiar with someone or something, that we become overly familiar and they sort of lose their luster. They sort of lose their attraction to us. And we can become so familiar with something that we cease to think about it, even uh, to even think about the details of it anymore. I'm afraid that can happen to us when we talk about being saved. When you come to a church like this one that is so Bible-centered, so saturated with the idea of people's salvation and evangelism is a priority, when you come to a church like that, if you're not careful, being saved, the idea of salvation becomes sort of a casual thing. And people talk about it, and they don't even really think about what they're talking about. In fact, sometimes people talk about it rather flippantly, and that's tragic. Don't ever, ever take your salvation for granted. There's nothing, 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 I say, more important than this world to me than my salvation. I hope you will listen carefully in view of that statement. This could very well be, and I pray to God it's not, but it could very well be the last time anybody ever talks to you about salvation. You don't know how long you're going to live. The Bible says that God has numbered our days. I know exactly how long I'm going to live. 
I'm going to live until my number is called by the Lord. And then I'm going to pass away. This week, a member of our church, 48 years old with no real history of heart trouble, passed away. And I can promise you it happens constantly. I want you to listen to me because this is the most important message you can ever hear in view of that. Number one, I want to remind you that salvation is God's greatest gift. Salvation is God's greatest gift, and salvation is man's greatest need. The greatest need of your life is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved. Now, men have very many needs. We have physical needs. We've got to have air. We'll die in a couple of minutes if we don't have air. We've got to have water. We've got to have food. We've got to have shelter. Physical needs, and they cry out real quickly to us when they're not being met. And then we have what we call felt needs, psychological needs, emotional needs, and all of us have them. They're, our survival doesn't depend upon them so much, but we sure want them met. I'm talking about things like loneliness. God made us social creatures, so we, we want to be with people. We want to be around people. We want relationships. We crave relationships. We saw during COVID what happens when we isolate people and they cannot have normal social intercourse and relationships with one another. And then we have the need for family. It's just in our DNA and we want family. We want security. And when we don't feel secure, it dominates our thinking then for until we can have it. We want significance. We want to feel like our lives mean something, that we're not just living here and there's no reason. We're just a biological thing, a physical being. We need significance. It's a felt need. We need to be free of stress and worry. And when worry and stress are dominating our thinking, we can't think about anything else very well. So we have many needs. But whether you realize it or not today, my friend, the greatest need you have is salvation. And you say, preacher, do you really mean that? Have you thought about that thoroughly to make a statement like that? And I sure have. I've thought about it for many years. And the answer is yes. Whether you realize it or not, the greatest need of your life is that you know that you are saved. And I answer it, yes, because you see, all the other things I've mentioned and spoken to you about, those are temporal. They're passing away. They are only going to last for a brief period of time. But the salvation of your soul has to do with eternity. Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and he lose his soul? Bob Jones Sr., the old man who founded Bob Jones University up there many years ago. He said, I was a country boy in Alabama. I was about 10 or 12 years old. I was walking down a dirt road in the country where I grew up. And he said, the greatest thought that I've ever had, even after dealing with all these professors and university people, and all these intellectuals, the greatest thought that I've ever 
had in my mind as I walked that road as a little country boy was that I've got to live somewhere forever and ever. And that whatever happens to me in this life, after that, I'm going to live on and on for all of eternity. The greatest thought I've ever had in my mind, I've got to live somewhere forever and ever. Daniel Webster was viewed as perhaps the greatest mind of the generation in which he lived. And uh, someone asked him, Mr. Webster, what's the greatest thing that you have ever considered in your mind? The greatest thought you've ever, you've read all the philosophers and all the wisdom literature. What is the greatest thing you've ever considered? And without hesitation, Daniel Webster said, my accountability to Almighty God. My accountability to Almighty God. You see, the reality is, is that man is alienated from God. He's separated and isolated from God by his sin. And without exception, the Bible says, all of us have sinned and come short of God's glory. What is God's glory? God's glory is His own character. It's His own standard of holiness. As great as God is, it's not hard to imagine that we've all fallen short of His character, His standard, His holiness, His righteousness, His goodness. And so we're alienated. Sin's Sin has many definitions, but the primary definition in the Bible, if you'll study the Word, the primary definition is to miss the mark. The whole idea is, is the archer with his arrow, and he shoots the arrow, and he misses the target. The gunner pulls the trigger, and he misses the target. And we've come short of God's target, His character, His holiness. There's only one who can mediate. There's only one who can take away our sin. And it's Jesus Christ who the Bible says was the Lamb of God who came and His purpose was to take away the sins of the world. And the reason He came is because the greatest need you and I and every human being has is to absolutely know that our sins have been taken away. It's your greatest need to be forgiven of sin, pardoned by the judge of the universe, to be reconciled to God. The book of Romans in chapter 8 talks about there's enmity between God and man. What's enmity? That's a word we don't use much, isn't it? But enmity means opposition. Enmity means hostility. There's hostility between God and man because Man's sins are so abhorrent to God. God looks down. He is revolted by man's sin. And to be reconciled to God, those sins have to be removed. And then our greatest need is to be rescued from the power and the bondage of sin. It's not just a matter of heaven. But you see, ladies and gentlemen, sin binds. Sin puts people in bondage. Sin imprisons people. I'm speaking to people, no doubt, today. There's some habit in your life. There's some lifestyle issue in your life. And you know what? It has you bound. You've lost your freedom. You no longer can, you no longer can even choose what you're going to do because some addiction, some habit, some lifestyle has you so bound. You are imprisoned to that. And 
Salvation through Jesus Christ is your, really, it's your only hope. And our greatest need is to be delivered also from the future consequences of sin because the Bible talks about a place called hell. And modern man scoffs at that. They laugh at us. Oh, you old Bible-believing people, you pulpit pounders, you, you believe in hellfire? Well, that's a figment of imagination. It may be a figment of your imagination. I can tell you the Bible speaks about it in reality. So you, you are, you are the greatest need, the point I'm trying to make, the greatest need you have is to be saved, to be forgiven of sin, to be reconciled to God, to be rescued from the power and the bondage of sin, to be delivered from the future consequences of sin. How do you define salvation? There's many definitions. I'll give you the one I like the best. Salvation means to be delivered. It means to be rescued. Jesus Christ came to the earth. He came to the manger on a rescue operation. Think of it like this. A person is drowning. Somebody gets in a boat and goes out, and they drop a lifesaver into the water, and the person takes that as a gift of God, and they wrap their arms around it, and they are delivered. They're rescued. We are sinking going down for the third time, drowning in this morass of sin that has caught all of us up. And the Lord Jesus Christ came and he rescued us. Another definition is preservation. Salvation is preservation. There's at least four specific ways that I have read and studied through the years and even preached this as an outline Salvation is salvation from the penalty of sin, to be judged, or to be justified and declared no longer guilty, to be declared of God that the charges against me have been dropped, that there's no longer a sentence against me, that the penalty is canceled. I have been pardoned. And then salvation is from the power of sin, as I just said the power to overcome those old habits, those addictions, those things that have bound me. It may just be mental. It may be my thought life, but I need victory over the power of sin in my life. And then salvation is salvation from the presence of sin. Ultimately, to be able to go to heaven when we die. Oh, how important it is. And we just tend to forget that. But Boy, to face death without the Lord Jesus Christ, it's unimaginable, isn't it? To have Him in our lives, to not fear the fact that we will not be in heaven with Him. And then fourthly, when we're saved, we're saved from the pleasure of sin. We're given a new nature. And uh, I've discovered this in my life. If there were no other reason that I would, uh, if there were no other reason that I believe today that I'm saved, it would be this, that every time I sin and know I've sinned, I'm miserable. You know what? When you get saved, the Lord just takes the pleasure out of sin. Oh, you may go out and, you know, you may get into something and enjoy it for a little while, 
And then the Holy Spirit wells up within you. And if you have been saved, you can't, you can't enjoy your sins. You can sin, <laughs> but you won't enjoy it very long. Your conscience will trouble you, and you will have to run to the cross and find forgiveness from your sin. Dr. Lewis Sperry Schaefer was one of the founders of the uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, one of the greatest theological minds, I think, in, of, uh, of America. And here, he, he wrote this down, and I just copied it, and I'm going to read it to you. and won't take me very long, so I really want you to listen to it. He describes salvation in 12 ways, and I'm just reading his words here, summary in that book. One, salvation is the work of God for man. It is not the work of man for God. Boy, what a, don't miss that. Salvation is the work of God for you. It's not you working for God. Salvation is the actual impartation of eternal life, not artificial imitation of ethical living. Three, salvation is the imputed righteousness of Christ, not the imperfect righteousness of human effort. Number four, Salvation is divine reconciliation. It's not human regulation. Number five, salvation is the canceling of our sin debt. It's not the cessation of some sins that we've been committing. Number six, salvation is being delivered from and dead to the Old Testament law. It's not delighting in or trying to do the law. Number seven, salvation is divine regeneration. It's not human reformation. Number eight, salvation is being acceptable to God through the merits and work of Christ on the cross. It is not being exceptionally good by the efforts of your own self. Number nine, salvation is completeness in Christ. It is not competency of character. Number 10, salvation is being granted every spiritual blessing is not professing any special betterment. Number 11, salvation is always and only of God, never of man to any degree. It is God's gift of the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. And number 12, salvation is unto good works. It will produce fruit in the life of those who have it. My, what a great description of salvation. I mean, that just covers the whole field, doesn't it? And it's our greatest need to be saved today. Now, salvation is man's greatest need. That's my first point. My second point is Jesus is the Savior. Salvation is our greatest need, and Jesus is the Savior. Did you notice there in your Bible in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, Thou shalt call his name Jesus, and Jesus is in all capital letters there, denoting his deity. He shall save his people from their sins. Now, turn your Bible there with me and get your pen or pencil out. Let me give you the, do you know what the word Jesus actually meant in the Old Testament Hebrew? It meant Jehovah saves. Jehovah saves. 
So just write it there in your margin so you won't ever forget that. In other words, Jesus' very name is that he is the Savior. Our greatest need is forgiveness of our sins, salvation. And God provided that Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. Even his name means that he saves. He delivers us. He rescues us. He preserves us in a spiritual or moral sense. I'm speaking about not your physical life necessarily. And his name even describes his mission. And so I read to you from Luke 19 and 10. The Son of Man, Jesus said, speaking of himself, is come. And why did he say he came? Not to just make the world a better place. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save. There's the word, the lost. The people who understand and accept their need of his salvation. Now, do you know, this is where Christianity parts ways with every other great world religion. You see, the founders of every other religion point the way by telling you to do something. You're to do something. And so in every other religion, you have the founder of that religion pointing, and he's saying something like this. If you'll do this, or you'll do this set of things, or these rituals, do this, and you will be a better person. You know what? Read your New Testament all the way through. I don't know that Jesus ever said anything about being a better person. I don't think that was his goal, to try to get people to be a little better than they are now. And you won't find that. He doesn't talk about being a better person. He talks about being a new person. What a difference. How much better just to be a new person in Christ. And so even his name describes his mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. And Christ doesn't point the way and say, do this and you'll be a better person. Christ doesn't point the way. He said, I am the way. You are saved through me. You come and knock on the door of salvation, and I will come in, and I will be a part of you. I will come in with you. Now, to be able to save, he had to be sinless, didn't he? Had he had one sin blotting his record, he could not save you and me. He would have been a sinner himself. So he had to be perfect. And uh, no other religious leader, by the way, if you read the writings about the other religious leaders, none of them ever claimed to be perfect. None of them ever even made the claim. And I come to the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't even have to believe what he said because there are all these testimonies of witnesses who saw his life, and they testified to the fact that he was sinless. Listen to Judas, who betrayed him. And after his betrayal, he is smitten in his conscience. He takes the 30 pieces of silver back to the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and he, and he takes them, and the Bible says he slung them on the floor. He threw them back at him. He said, I don't want these. This is blood money, and this is what he said. I have betrayed the innocent blood. Even the betrayer 
said Jesus was sinless, innocent blood. And then there was Pilate, who had just sentenced him to death. And three times he said, I find no fault in this man. I've interrogated him. I've examined him. I've listened to the testimonies of you people who want to get rid of him, and I can find no fault in this man. In John chapter 8, the Pharisees are coming to him, and they're making allegations and accusations against the Lord Jesus. And he looks at that crowd of religious leaders, and he said, which of you can convince me of sin? Which of you convinceth me of sin? And they were silent. And they melted away because there was no sin of which he could be convinced. Peter, writing in his book, refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, Peter knew him up close and personal. He had lived with him for three and a half years. And Peter refers to him as the lamb without blemish or spot. And he talks about him dying the just for the unjust. To be able to save, he had to be sinless, and he was the sinless son of God. But to be able to be saved, or to save, he had to be something else. He had to be God. Because no man, no one human being could pay for the sins of all humanity. Would you turn with me in your Bible to the book of Titus over and later in the New Testament there, almost to the end of it, after the book of 2 Timothy, 1 2 Timothy, and then Titus. And Titus here talks about whether he was Savior and God, if you will. And so in Titus chapter 1 and verse 3, God hath in due times manifested his word through preaching, which is committed unto me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now, he calls God our Savior. But we go to the next verse, verse 4, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Verse 3 says God is our Savior. Verse 4 says the Lord Jesus is our Savior. So logic would assume then that Jesus Christ is God, wouldn't it? And we go over to chapter number 2. And in chapter 2, he repeats it again in verse 10. He refers to God our Savior. And in verse number, let's see, 13, he refers to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is Savior and God. Two times you see those that attach together there. And you can go to other references throughout the Bible. You can go here to, uh, to chapter number 3 and go down to verse 4, God our Savior, and go down to verse 6, Jesus Christ our Savior. Over and over, the fact that He is God and that He is Savior, and it comes together in this one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. To be able to save, he had to be sinless. To be able to save, he had to be God. I read a story 
About a few years ago, a grandmother out in California was keeping her little two-year-old grandchild. And the little baby girl wandered into the backyard, and there was a swimming pool, and she fell in and uh, was floundering in the water, and of course she couldn't swim. And so the grandmother jumped into the pool trying to rescue the little girl, and they said the next morning they found both bodies at the bottom of the pool. It's one thing to be willing to save. It's something else to be able to save. And our Lord Jesus Christ was both willing, and so he came to the manger in Galilee, and he was not only willing, our Lord was able to save us. And the book of Hebrews says it like this in chapter 7, wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. He is able to save them to the uttermost. What's the uttermost? To the extremes, to the margins. Am I speaking to someone today here and you say, Brother Bill, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad my life is. You don't know how messed up I am. Preacher, I don't think God can save me. Well, Hebrews 7, 25, look it up. He is able to save to the uttermost to the margins, to the worst, all that come unto God by him. What a verse. And then we turn to 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 14 in your Bible. And it says, the Father sent the Son, and here's our word again, to be the Savior of the world. The Father sent the Son, and so he was sinless, and he was able, and he was sent from the very throne of God himself for one mission and one purpose, and that is to save all that come unto God by him. Christ, our Savior. I love this. If we had needed information, God would have sent us an educator. Think about that. If we had needed technology, God would have sent us a scientist. If we had needed money, God would have sent us an economist. If we had needed pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But we didn't. Our greatest need was salvation. And so he sent us a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you obtain salvation? It is so simple that people stumble over it. You do it through trusting Him, through faith. You do it through believing on Him, believing what the Bible says about Him and relying on and depending upon that for your eternal salvation. As Dr. Schaefer so wonderfully said, it's not anything that we do for Him It's what He does for us. And we call that grace, don't we? And so how do you obtain salvation? The jailer said to the apostle Paul in the midst of a crisis, what must I do to be saved? And he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And in Romans 10, Paul writes, whosoever, that's everybody, that's you, whosoever shall call, upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. 
I read in the little book that I promoted there before I preached there, Lee Strobel's testimony. Lee Strobel was an atheist. He was a reporter for the Chicago uh, Tribune. He also was a lawyer. He had earned a law degree, a brilliant man. And he was Jewish in his background, so in no way was he a believer in Jesus Christ. And he began to do this investigation of who is Jesus Christ. And he began to study the Scriptures and other historical accounts. And over time, he became convinced that Jesus Christ is who the Bible says he is exactly. And so he said, after I became convinced that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, one day I simply bowed my head and I asked the Lord Jesus Christ to save me from my sins, to come into my life through his Holy Spirit and to cleanse me and make me a new person. Here's what he said. Listen. He said, I didn't hear any bells ringing. There weren't any lights flashing. There wasn't any electric current running over my body. I didn't feel any different than I did before I prayed that prayer. But he said, I meant it. It was from the deepest part of my being that I cried out to God to save me. And he said, then I began, I continued reading my Bible and praying. And I didn't have this electrifying experience that some people talk about. But he said, things began to change. Old habits began to drop off. Things that I had previously enjoyed, I no longer enjoyed. And there was this deep, settled peace that came over my life that most important to me of all, I just knew that I knew down in the deepest recesses of my soul that I was a different person, that God had saved me. The Lord Jesus Christ had done his miracle work in me again. And I had this assurance that I had a relationship with God now through Jesus Christ. Our heads are bowed. Our eyes are closed.